With each passing day, there's a little more light at the beginning and end of the period in which the sun illuminates our portion of the world. There are 36 days until the time when light and dark are more or less equal. What will happen between now and then? Charlottesville Community Engagement aims to tell you as much as possible. And I'm your host, Sean Tubbs. On today's program, legislation to make mask mandates meaningless in schools is poised to pass the Virginia General Assembly. Albemarle County is briefed on the potential threat of the spotted lanternfly. Charlottesville City Council is briefed on how floodplains are classified and then votes to approve a rezoning on Nassau Street to allow more residential density. And Charlottesville Economic Development continues tracking retail vacancies across the city. Today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement goes out to Camp Albemarle, which has for 60 years been a wholesome, rural, rustic, and restful site for youth activities, church groups, civic events, and occasional private programs. Located on 14 acres on the banks of the Mormons River near Free Union, Camp Albemarle continues as a legacy of being a civilian conservation corps project that sought to promote the importance of rural activities. Camp Albemarle seeks support for a plan to winterize the Hamner Lodge, a structure built in 1941 by the CCC and used by every 4th and 5th grade student in Charlottesville and Albemarle for the study of ecology for over 20 years. If this campaign is successful, Camp Albemarle could operate year-round. Consider your support by visiting campalbemarlevaorg slash donate. As the weekend begins, the waning continues. Yesterday, the Virginia Department of Health reported a percent positivity of COVID cases of 13.7%, down from 23.2% eight days earlier. On January 11th, that figure was 36%. Dr. Kyle Enfield is with the University of Virginia Health System. We are now in a period of time where we're seeing uh, the highest cases of covid uh, beginning to come down. Um, and these have been the highest cases we've seen ever, including among our uh, children. Uh, and unfortunately, some of these children have had uh, long-term outcomes uh, that have been uh, relate, related to COVID disease as well as deaths. In Virginia, there have been eight COVID deaths in people under the age of 10 and 10 deaths of people under the age of 20. And we do know that masking and vaccines have been our best defense at preventing more spread of COVID um, during all of the, the pandemic. There have been 131,327 reported COVID cases in people under the age of 10 and over 204,000 under the age of 20. This week, the Virginia Senate passed a bill on a 21-17 to 17 vote that would prohibit localities from requiring students to wear a mask in school. That same bill was reported out of the House Education Committee on Friday on a 12-10 to 10 vote. Here's what it says. The parent of any child enrolled in a public elementary or secondary school or in any school-based early childhood care and education program may elect for such child to not wear a mask while on school property. Dr. Enfield said that may be premature from a public health perspective. You know, while I'm very hopeful for a future where we can stop wearing masks as part of our daily lives, I don't think the time is, is there yet. 
People who are not vaccinated contract COVID at a rate 4.6% more than those who have had their shots. That's according to the latest data from the Virginia Department of Health. Partially vaccinated people contract at a rate two times higher. Those trends show up close to home as well. Most salient thing I think people should take away for us is the people that we see in the ICU right now, uh, which is about a third of our cases, only one of them was uh, vaccinated and boosted, and that person is immunocompromised. Um, so I think that speaks to the importance of vaccinations uh, ongoing in preventing severe, serious illness. Visit the Blue Ridge Health District's website for information about getting vaccinated. The city of Charlottesville has completed its latest analysis of commercial property and has found a vacancy rate of five and a quarter percent. That's up slightly from July when the last report from the Charlottesville Office of Economic Development was compiled. Here's a section from the report. The retail property in the city of Charlottesville is showing slight signs of rebounding from the negative impacts felt since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Barracks Road Shopping Center has a vacancy rate of 9.3%, and the downtown mall has increased to 3.7% since July. The corner is at 3.28%, Seminole Square is at 12.96%, both Preston Plaza and McIntyre Place are both full. The peak vacancy on the mall was recorded in July of 2009 and January 2010 at the height of the last recession. Notable vacancies at the moment include the spaces that formerly housed Bashir's Taverna and Fellini's. Since the last study last summer, new stores are on the way, including a new location for Bebadero in the former downtown grill space. A restaurant called Botanical Fair will occupy the former Java Java space. Read the report for all of the details. Charlottesville City Council has taken action on a rezoning on the eastern edge of Belmont, six weeks after asking for more information. The previous council had held a public hearing for a request to increase the zoning on the property from R2 to R3, on land that some claimed was unsafe for any development. The council wanted more information about the property's relationship with the floodplain. On February 7th, city engineer Jack Dawson prepared a briefing for the five elected officials, including the two new members who just joined. There was a fair bit of committee members who expressed concern of the flood risk associated with rezoning, including some varying information about floodplain mapping and some other resources about water surface elevations for the 1% annual exceedance event. 1% annual exceedance is another way of saying 100-year flood, a term that can be somewhat misleading because such heavy volumes do in fact happen more frequently. Properties that are prone to flooding can still receive insurance through a program monitored by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The city uh, agreed to partner with FEMA as floodplain managers when we signed with the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, city property owners get access to flood insurance through the NFIP exchange. In return, we agree to create a floodplain development ordinance with a series of minimum standards. The property on Nassau Street is within the 1% exceedance zone, colored light blue on the city's GIS viewer. That's different from the flood way, which is marked with red and blue stripes. FEMA officials determine where those boundaries lie and make periodic reviews, but property owners can appeal based on evidence. This is a process known as the Letter of Map Revision, an acronym that goes by the name LOMAR. 
The city is the gatekeeper for determining LOMAR val validity. Um, they, a LOMAR should improve or correct the existing model based on new data or improved methods. Um, and we're, it's our job in engineering and the, the, as the floodplain administrators to make sure that it's technically sound. An application for this property was made to FEMA in October of 2014, and the application was sent on to the city for their comments. However, Dawson said in this case, the technical comments from city engineering staff were not captured in the revision. The 2017 LOMAR, whether or not engineering agreed with it at the time, is the model that informs the floodplain. He also said that engineering doesn't typically get involved during a rezoning. But when a site plan is submitted, we look to make sure it meets all codes, and they can be in a floodplain as long as they're built one foot above that flood elevation. Dawson said there is a risk of building in the floodplain, and many have done so. There are 266 lots in the city with structures that are in the floodplain. It, there's, it's a high-risk area um, living there. There's some implicit risk with that. Uh, more people living in the floodplain, there's more risk taken on um, as a city. Charlottesville Mayor Lloyd Snook said he had had concerns about the process after they were brought up, but he said he arrived at a conclusion after many conversations. That the decision we are being asked by some folks to make here is not a proper decision for us to make at the at the rezoning phase. That does not mean that if if we grant the rezoning and the, uh, that it's necessarily going to pass a site plan review. Developer Nicole Scro said that by right they could build three duplexes on the property. The rezoning would allow more units to be built, which would bring down the cost of each to the people who live there. The composition of the buildings is smaller units, and we're doing that to save on construction costs so we can hit lower rents. So that's the purpose of this rezoning. Scro said she understood the concerns, but she said she felt confident about the flood risk. The structures will be built at 327 feet above sea level. And then we're going to have three feet of crawl space and another foot of subflooring. So the finished floor elevation will be at 331 approximately. Council voted 5-0 to zero to agree to the rezoning. This isn't the end of the story with flood modeling. Charlottesville is beginning to develop a new flood model for the Moores Creek watershed to better understand the hydrological processes. This is being paid for by the state government with proceeds from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and it's time for another subscriber-fueled shout-out. If you're interested in learning more about the birds around us, the National Sporting Library and Museum has a virtual event for you coming up on February 24th. Jennifer Ackerman, the author of The Genius of Birds, will explore the brilliance of birds and delve into the mysteries of the avian brain. Join Ackerman as she shares her global adventures into the genius of birds. Learn how birds make and use tools, teach each other skills, count, navigate, create art, perform astonishing feats of memory, communicate, and even pass along cultural traditions. The author will be joined by two top officials from the Wildlife Center of Virginia, an organization that has helped nearly 90,000 wild animals from every corner of Virginia. President Ed Scott and Senior Vice President Amanda Nicholson will bring along ambassador animals. The virtual program is free and available via Zoom or Facebook. 
Drop a line to info at nationalsporting.org for a link, or visit the National Sporting Library and Museum on Facebook. Only one more segment to go, and it's kind of an important one. It has either two headlines, depending on which way you'd like to go. It's either Albemarle briefed on spotted lanternfly, or shove off like Corma de la Catula. As program manager for plant industry services at the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, David Giannino leads the state's efforts to fight threats to native plants that could harm whole industries if left unchecked. And we have many different pest programs where we work with invasive species to mitigate either their spread or their impact here in Virginia. And uh, in 2021, unfortunately, spotted lanternfly has made its way to Albemarle County. That was in July of 2021, when a plant inspector found multiple life stages of the spotted lanternfly on the Rivanna River near a railroad. Giannino told the Albemarle Board of Supervisors on February 2nd that the spotted lanternfly can severely damage crops of apples and grapes. It is a piercing, sucking mouth part insect, and it would suck. It sucks phloem sap from the stems of these trees, um, which can negatively impact yield and also can impact the quality of a fruit that relies on lots of sugar content. They swarm and feed very intensely in the fall, and that also can impact. Uh, how nice the grapes are, how good a wine it makes. This spread of spotted lanternfly is due to it being a hitchhiking bug that jumps onto modes of transportation. Originally from China, the bug arrived in Pennsylvania in 2014. It doesn't traditionally fly, but it will glide, and it jumps onto cars, trucks, gravel, buses, anything that moves it will jump onto, and that's a primary way that it gets around. Giannino said the swarms can also affect other property owners because it is unpleasant to be around. He said, if not addressed, this can affect agribusiness and especially agritourism. The sheer number of insects that this pest can create in an environment is is astounding. The spread of the spotted lanternfly is compounded by another invasive species known either as Alanthus or Tree of Heaven. So far, populations in Albemarle County are not as high as they are in the Winchester area, where a quarantine was established in 2019 and expanded to Clark and Warren counties last summer. Here's a section of a site set up to provide information for Winchester area residents. The quarantine requires business owners to obtain a permit and inspect all materials that are stored outside, as well as trucks, trailers, and vehicles that travel outside of the quarantine area. I believe we have opportunities here to kind of prevent this from happening because we do now have better tools. Giannino said the site in Albemarle was treated with pesticides. Trees were injected with substances to prevent further infestation. Well, we've placed traps, we've scraped egg masses, and we plan to do a thorough survey there next year and continue treatment to try and mitigate this population. The spotted lanternfly has no natural predators here, and Giannino said they do not taste very good to other species. Giannino said early detection is key to addressing any invasive species, and people who make a sighting are asked to report it to local extension offices, so the extent of the spread is known across the Commonwealth. They also want people to seek out resources which you can find in a link in the newsletter. Also, kill it.
We tell people to stomp, scrape, squish the spotted lanternfly and then report it. More on the spotted lanternfly as we move towards spring. And that is it for this Saturday installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement for February 12th. Tomorrow is February 13th, which means that there is a superb owl, I'm told. There will also be an installment of the Week Ahead newsletter, which may or may not be super. I haven't written it yet, so I can't say one way or the other. But I can say that there will be another installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement coming out on Monday morning, which is a day which has absolutely nothing going for it except for the fact that it is divisible by itself. 214? I'm kind of reaching here. If you'd like to support this particular program, you can go to infocville.com and click on the support the info button. One way you can seriously help though is to purchase a subscription through Substack, which will allow me to get another contribution from the company Ting. Ting has generously matched all kinds of Substack subscriptions for the past nine months or so now, and I'm very grateful to them for that. There's also a link in the newsletter to a couple of deals that you can get from them. The other thing you can do, of course, is share it with somebody else. There's lots of information here each and every time, and my hope is to get it to as many people as possible. Who am I? I'm Sean Tubbs, and I am wishing you a great weekend, and I want you to be safe, and whatever that means for you, that does not mean you lock yourself inside of a safe. Don't do that, because, you know, at least if you do have like a snorkel or something. I'll be back in the near future with more of this program. Thanks for listening.